Thanks to Health IQ for supporting this episode of Industry Focus. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance. To see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com fool to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz and potentially save up to 41% on premiums. Thanks also to Quip for supporting this episode of Industry Focus. Join over 3 million healthy mouths and get Quip today, starting at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash fool right now, you'll get your first refill free. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, November 25th. I'm your host, Jason Moser, and joining me today, as always, certified financial planner, Mr. Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything? Oh, it's doing just great today. I'm a lot of news to talk about. I'm excited to get into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there there is a lot of news. I tell you, we had uh, today was like massive merger Monday for market foolery earlier, and we definitely have some of that news to cover to today. Uh, speaking of which, on today's financial show, we'll take a look at PayPal's latest acquisition. We'll take a look at Stoneco's most recent quarter. Uh, we've got plenty more of the last stock you bought and why. But we'll lead today off with the big news of the day, though I think we had the weekend more or less to mull it over. Uh, it looks like Charles Schwab will indeed be acquiring TD Ameritrade in a $26 billion all-stock deal. Matt, I just hope they don't use this as an excuse to pivot away from those $0 commissions we've come to know and love. I, I don't think they will, but I mean, the key is just how smart of a move Schwab has made over the past like month or so. Um, you think about it, they dropped commissions. All the other brokers tanked because they're more dependent on commissions than Schwab was. Just to kind of give you the numbers, Schwab only relied on commissions for about 3 to 4% of its revenue even before the drop to zero. TD Ameritrade, it was closer to 25%. Right. So all the other brokers tanked. So Schwab's essentially buying TD for the same price it was trading at before all this happened. They're, they're acquiring a, their biggest rival and not paying a premium, essentially. Um, to, and this is going to create the biggest broker uh, discount brokerage in the world, about five trillion dollars worth of assets. Um, I don't, like I guess, that I do not think they're going to kill the no commissions. They've Schwab has been very clear when they say this is not a temporary promotion. This is the price. This is how it's going to be. And like I said, Schwab only depended on commissions for about three or four percent of its revenue anyway. Right. So it's really tough to make the case to bring that back now, especially because. I mean, remember, Schwab and TD Ameritrade weren't the only two to kill commissions. So, that that would be shooting themselves in the foot competitive-wise, I, I would say. Yeah, more than likely. I mean, you mentioned how with TD Ameritrade, certainly commissions were a bigger piece of the pie for them. And, and account fees and net interest revenue um, are really where it's at for, for both of these companies, I think, uh, now. But, I mean, with TD Ameritrade in particular, I mean, if you look at account fees and net interest revenue, that was making that made up closer to about fifty-five percent of total revenue, um, and so really that's where the scale play comes in, right? I mean, they're making the ultimate long-term uh, bet here in that bringing those commissions all the way down to zero ultimately will keep the account holders they have, bring more account holders in, um, and, and ultimately with with those account holders come all of the money that we you know have in our accounts. That's that's money that Schwab will then be able to use to make more money, very much like a bank does. Uh, so that really goes to show you the value in getting big here. Um, you know, I was reading a piece in the Wall Street Journal this morning 
that I, I, I thought was it was a pretty interesting angle here. It was, it was talking specifically about this deal and about registered investment advisors, RIAs, um, and their role in in this calculus, so to speak, because RIAs uh, they are responsible for. A lot of the money that is held in deposit there with these big brokerages. I mean, they use these big brokerages like whether it's Schwab or TD Ameritrade or others to to do a lot of their transacting. And uh, you know, for me, it, it was understandable in 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 the sense that they feel like okay, this deal it could in theory limit choice, and and then it gives the combined entity, the bigger Schwab, a little bit more. Power to kind of do what they want, assert their market dominance, so to speak. So it, it seems to me that with Schwab, there's a big opportunity uh, for them to take this customer centric approach and, and make sure they court these RIAs to make them feel uh, welcome, to make them feel secure, to make them feel like they're not going to try to try to uh, pull a pull a switcheroo on them and, and, and change the game, so to speak. Uh, given your experience as a certified financial planner, what do you feel? Do you, I have to believe you feel like the Schwab is, is going to look at this as an opportunity to really become more customer-centric, but, but I, I don't know. I mean, I would think so. Um, I, I think I remember you saying that you're a TD Ameritrade customer also. I am, yeah. Um, and I am too, and I've I've played around with their institutional platform, the one for RIAs. I, I have never actually used it, you know, with real money, but I've I've explored it, and it's like just like their personal platform. It's the most consumer friendly, easy to use platform you could find, full of features, full of you know anything you would want. And if Schwab can integrate that, and just to get, Schwab is about three times the size of TD Ameritrade. I personally was surprised to find that out. Yeah. I, I actually didn't know that off the top of my head. Um, but so Schwab's going to absorb this fantastic platform of TD Ameritrade's into its ecosystem. And don't don't forget that Schwab has a ton of proprietary investment products, more so than TD Ameritrade. They're on mutual funds, ETFs, things like that. Yeah. Um, so that's another feature that they're going to be able to bring into the TD Ameritrade ecosystem. It's essentially, I'm thinking of this as a win-win for customers of both brokerages. I'm not talking about the investors, but you know, the customers of Schwab and Ameritrade, Schwab's customers get TD Ameritrade's, you know, second to none platform. TD Ameritrade's customers get Schwab's proprietary investment products, probably easier access to those. The ability to trade fractional shares, which is a Schwab only thing right now. Um, so there's a few, there's like, you know, there's features on both sides of the, of each platform that it's, they say integration is going to take about 18 to 36 months from the the day this closes, but once everything's integrated, this is going to be a you know a powerhouse platform for individual investors and RIAs alike. So, what do you think the chances are? And I'm not sure if we've seen. I mean, I haven't seen any clarity in this one way or the other. But I mean, you remember TD Ameritrade recently just acquired Scott Trade. I mean, it wasn't all that long ago. I was a Scott Trade customer, and I came over to TD Ameritrade from Scott Trade. So that required a little bit of of work on my part. Not much. They did a pretty good job, I think, of of integrating there. But I ultimately moved from one trading platform to another, um, and had to get used to the new interface and whatnot. Um, Given where they, given given how recent how recently that happened, what do you think the chances are that TD Ameritrade that Schwab maintains that TD Ameritrade interface completely separately uh, for its current account holders, or, or do you feel like 
this ultimately is a play just to merge these two together and make one slick interface that they can maintain. Well, I think their eventual plan is to merge everything together, but I, I really hope they do it in baby steps. Um, I, I love TD Ameritrade's platform. It's very user-friendly. Like you said, all the Scott Trade customers are just getting used to that. And it's the highest rated platform in the business. I mean, if they're, if they're smart, that's the big thing TD Ameritrade's bringing to the table. If they're smart, they're going to keep a lot of TD Ameritrade's you know architecture on the site. So I don't, I don't think they're going to be in any rush. I think that um, the full integration will be toward the later end of that time frame, probably about three years. Which I, I mean, if they do it in little steps, like like you know, integrating one feature at a time and trying to make sure it blends kind of seamlessly, so people who are used to TD Ameritrade's, because I mean, I've I've used Schwab's platform myself, just primarily for like you know, just to see how it works, and I greatly prefer TD Ameritrade's. I don't necessarily want to be a Schwab customer, you know, platform wise. So I'm hoping they let me keep my TD Ameritrade platform for a while and that any integration takes place, you know, over a period of years, not months. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you totally. And I mean, I, I logged into my TD Ameritrade account this morning just to see something else entirely. But the yellow banner was already up at the top there announcing this deal. Um, so I imagine the emails are going to start flooding in and we're going to have to, you know, do X, Y and Z to make sure we have all of our uh, ducks in a row there. Uh, a couple of things real quickly here. You know, it wasn't all that long ago. I remember on our show, you were sitting there calling TD Ameritrade a winner, and this was before the Schwab deal ever even really materialized. Yeah, I kind of wish I would have taken my own advice. <laughs> TD Ameritrade, I think, was trading at something like $32 a share when I said that. Now it's getting acquired at roughly $51 a share based on the current stock price. So I, I said it because I, you know, this gives them an advantage over everyone else because because of their great platform. Now that now that every uh, commissions are gone across the board, the best platform is going to win. So I still they, I still believe that. I, now I think Schwab kind of inherits that advantage. So this is it. Um, the zero commissions are not going to have the margin impact that people seem to think. Um, I'm not saying run out and buy Schwab, but it's. I don't think they're going to be, you know, a loser of the zero commission thing. I think now that, especially, they're buying the TD Ameritrade's proprietary, you know, trading asset, trading platform, and and educational tools and things like that. I think is going to be a big win for them, and in, in in the in the commission wars, the, it makes them more appealing than say a Robinhood or any of those. Well, you sort of answered my my next question there, but but ultimately, I want to want to lead into this and explicitly ask you this question because knowing the success that we have with TD Ameritrade, and and knowing that when you look at at Schwab, granted, it's probably a little bit under the radar for a lot of folks. Um, I mean, when you look at the actual metrics, I mean, they they generate healthy return on assets um, around one and a half percent today, which is in line with uh, certainly bigger peers in, in in the space in the banking world. Um, this scale is going to make them stronger. It's outperformed the market over the last five years. I mean, the question I think for investors today, given what we know, is Schwab going forward. Is this going to be a business worth owning? I mean, I know you said you're not telling people to run out there and go buy Schwab right now, but I mean, are you looking at Schwab today thinking, you know what, this is a bit more of an attractive looking business today than it was a month ago, or are you still on the fence? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I think it's a more attractive business than it was a few days ago. But I, the reason I say it, don't rush out and buy it, I, I still need to take a step back and look at it from a, you know, a stock perspective, you know, return on assets, things like you're talking about valuation. Um, so 
maybe stay tuned for another week or two, and that that might be my one to watch. I'll report back on that. Well, speaking of big acquisitions, PayPal recently announced a $4 billion, mostly cash deal, to acquire uh, the deal site. I don't know exactly how to describe Honey, Matt. I've never used Honey, but it seems like, really, at the end of the day, it's helping consumers uh, find great bargains. And, and PayPal has decided that they want um, they want to be in that business, and so they announced a four billion dollar deal here to to buy Honey, and immediately the headline number there of four billion dollars sounds like a really big acquisition, and I mean it is the biggest acquisition in PayPal's history. But I, you know, I did want to look at this in a little bit of context because when you go back to 2013, when PayPal acquired Braintree, which that also included Venmo, um, among other things. That deal in 2013, which I think was $800 million, that represented about 2.5% of PayPal's total market cap at the time. So, this Honey deal, it's a bit more than 3% of the total market cap. So, I mean, it's a big acquisition for sure, but on a relative basis, it's actually not that crazy. But what are some of your takeaways here with this deal? You like it or you don't? Well, first of all, I trust PayPal's management when it comes to acquisitions. Like you said, they just they acquired Venmo for eight hundred million dollars, <laughs> yeah. and that seems like a steal to me. Um, I mean, Venmo. If you had to break out Venmo today, I would say it's definitely in the tens of billions of dollars, billions of dollars by itself. It's working out well. So I have very little reason not to trust PayPal's management when it comes to this. <laughs> Having said that, the best way I would describe a honey is like a like an Ebates or a RetailMeNot.com, things like that. A kind of a deal finding platform. Right. Um, the, the idea here is that Honey right now has 17 million active users, which is a lot for a you know a startup that has only been has only been around for so long. Um, PayPal has 300 million users mm-hmm. that it can integrate this platform to. And this is I see it as kind of a necessary step to stay competitive. The reason I say that is like if look at Square's Cash App. Cash App has their cash boost offer platform that essentially it serves a similar function. It's not really a deal finding thing. It offers deals to members. Um, I think right now one of the things I saw was ten uh, percent off at Panera if you use your cash card. Yeah. So um, PayPal and Venmo, to my knowledge, didn't really have a, a, a parallel feature to that. I don't believe so. So this kind of brings something like that into PayPal's ecosystem, and it's a you know a standalone app that's built up its own following. It has a proven track record of success. Um, and it it's make it makes money. It's uh, unlike the cash apps, the cash boost, which Square is essentially subsidizing. Um, Honey makes money by <laughs> that rhymed. Honey <laughs> makes money by charging retailers a percentage of of the sales made with the coupons and deals it finds. It's kind of like a you know um, the merchants pay Honey to bring business in the door, even if it means less revenue. Um, so. It could be a, a money maker. It's already being monetized, unlike Square's version is kind of where I'm going with that. Right. Um, and remember, PayPal has 24 million merchant partners. Square has, I think, about 2 million merchants in its network. So it's a big opportunity to bring those merchants into this this platform. Uh, can you imagine, you know, even a, a, even if, say, 10% of PayPal's merchants, you know, use this use the deal platform to get more business and how much incremental revenue that can mean for PayPal. Yeah, it does seem like there is it seems like there's a lot of opportunity out there to to monetize this platform. I mean, they they Honey is already 
you know, to, to the extent they can with the 17 million users they have, I mean, they're helping those users realize savings. And then so for PayPal, looking to become more a part of the overall transaction as opposed to just what you might use when you come to the final part of the transaction when you're checking out, I mean, this is this is certainly one way to go about it. I mean, Honey has some actually some pretty really uh, some key partners. I think in, in in companies like Walmart and Booking.com and Etsy and even AliExpress, uh, which is part of the of Alibaba. So I mean, it's certainly it's a name that that a lot of consumers out there are very familiar with, and really. Um, probably less about the 17 million monthly active users for Honey, and more about the fact that PayPal is going to be able to incorporate that technology, that part of the transaction into their universe, which, as you mentioned, uh, has somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 million monthly active users. Right, and it's it, that's an interesting point to to make that. PayPal's paying $4 billion, which is a lot. And it, and it's not what Honey is worth today. And that's what PayPal thinks it's the value is going to it's going to add more value than that to its own ecosystem. Yeah. It's not that it's not that anyone really believes Honey's worth $4 billion today. That's why you're seeing all these these reactions like PayPal paid how much? <laughs> um, but it it's it could definitely end up adding that value over time like like you saw with Venmo. Venmo wasn't worth $800 million when PayPal acquired it. Exactly. It, it certainly it certainly is now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that's worked out so so far so good and and I mean to your point um wow, this is an acquisition that gives uh, investors a reason to maybe raise an eyebrow. You also have to remember that this is a company with a pretty good track record of of uh of M&A and so we certainly have to at least consider giving them the benefit of the doubt. I know that I will. Um, and at the end of the day, four billion dollars—it is a lot of money, but it is—it is—it's um, something that that they can they can easily afford. And um, and so I guess we will we will see how that how that plays out. I mean, what we want to see is we want to see more users and we want to see more transactions and 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 uh, you know that'll that'll keep the uh, the top line there growing for PayPal. So that's what we'll be following. Um, let's turn now to Stoneco, and not a company that we talk about as frequently on this show, but it's one that we will talk more frequently about, just given the nature of the business and what it does. Stoneco, which is really a pure Brazilian play at this point, uh, but it, it is what is known as a merchant acquiring business, and so essentially, you know, it's it's that link in the payment chain that that connects merchants to payment systems, and so. Uh, these acquirers make a little but a little bit of money for for all of the transactions that the merchants make on their platforms. And Stoneco is a, is a business that is developing software and and even hardware, something similar, I guess you might call it to to a Square. Um, but earnings came out last week, and the market reacted uh, very positively to the news. Stock stock was up. I think it finished up twenty uh, percent on the day. Um, and if you look at some of these numbers, I certainly understand why. With an active client base now of uh, almost four hundred and thirty thousand clients, up eighty three percent year over year. Revenue up sixty two percent. Total payment volume going through the network of one hundred and fifteen billion Brazilian uh, reals, up sixty percent. Uh, even the take rate uh, is up eleven basis points. And, and take rate, which is the ultimately that's the sum of, of net revenue from transaction activities and subscription services. Um, and equipment rentals and whatnot uh, divided by their their total payment volume. Uh, I, I think there are a lot of reasons why this this small company 
got a lot bigger last week. Uh, what was your take takeaway from the uh, from the most recent quarter there for Stoneco, Matt? Well, you said it. There, um, I was before we recorded. I was reading through Stoneco's earnings, and I was trying to find something not to like, and I couldn't do it. Um, <laughs> Valuation kinda... maybe is the only thing, right? I mean, it's it's <laughs> it's it's you it's, know, I wouldn't call the stock a steal, but you know, hey, listen. No, it, like you said, the active clients uh, almost four hundred thirty thousand. But that's the real thing between the lines is that they added almost sixty nine thousand in the third quarter alone. And that's up from about 50000 in the second quarter. So not only is it growing 83% year over year, the growth rate's actually accelerating, Yeah, um, which is, I think, really what the market was happy to see. And not only that, margins are better. And the net margin grew by by 8.5 percentage points year over year to thirty, a little over 30%. That's a huge jump in margin. Um, expenses declined. That's really where the margin came from. Um, and uh, unlike a lot of these American fintech startups, Stone Coast cash flow positive. I don't think a lot of people realize that it free cash flow of about ten million dollars this past quarter. Um, it has about over a billion dollars of net cash in its books, and like you said, it's still only in Brazil. Um, think of this as the Latin American square, like kind of like you compared it to. They're trying to, they're just getting into the credit, um, small business credit, kind of like think Square Capital, but you know, right when it started. So that's kind of that's a new part of its ecosystem, and there's a lot of potential in international markets down there. Argentina is a really big one that it could potentially move into, just to name one. Um, so there, this could still be the very early stages. Brazil's a really big country. I don't think a lot of Americans think you know China and India when you hear like high population countries. Brazil's a pretty big population center. And with and with a pretty big middle class, I should add. So there there could still be a whole lot of room to grow here. Yeah, I, I agree with you, uh, particularly in regard to the the middle class uh, emergence there, not only in Latin America but certainly Brazil. And it makes me think of some work I had done a number of of quarters back on Mercado Libre, which I think most people recognize as the Latin American e commerce platform. But what they've so astutely done is is they've invested significantly into their own payments platform, and and so uh, you know you have Mercado Libre. Uh, coming into its own there, taking its own portion of the market there uh, in Brazil really is the that's the lion's share of Mercado Libre's business today. But when you look at Stoneco, you think bigger picture. I mean, this is an integrated financial platform they're ultimately developing. It's going to cover everything from acquiring to banking and credit, like you mentioned just a minute ago. Um, I mean, this is going to become more meaningful and obvious as it rolls out in the new year, but it, it gets me back to this question that I have. Given the size of the company today, still fairly small, even if the valuation seems a little bit stretched, but given the success the company's witnessed today, uh, and given where Mercado Libre is now, at closing in on about a $30 billion market cap, I, I, I mean, I have to at least ask the question, is there a chance that Mercado Libre looks at Stone Co. and thinks, you know what, we probably ought to try to bring this company into our universe uh, to really own the entirety of this market. I wouldn't be surprised at that. Um, and another one, maybe Berkshire should should take a closer look. Um, doesn't Berkshire already own a, a big chunk of Stone Co.? They do, like, yeah. That's another good point there. They have a little bit more than a 5% stake in Stone Co., which is why I think a lot of a lot of folks in our universe really, uh, that, that made them do a little bit of a double take because it was a little bit out of 
Uh, I, I, you'd say it's a little bit out of Berkshire's wheelhouse, and I don't think it was it was Warren Buffett who was necessarily making that investment. Uh, so maybe this is a, a sign of things to come for for Berkshire Hathaway in the way that they're going to be investing under a new guard um, in the coming decades. But but yeah, I mean the fact that Berkshire holds a relatively meaningful stake in this little company, I think, uh, is, is certainly very telling. Yeah, and I mean the reason that Berkshire can't buy an American they, American company like this, like. You know, Berkshire doesn't want the American banking regulations weighing it down. But if it acquires, you know, a foreign payment processing company, that could be less of an issue potentially. Very good point indeed. Well, it was a good quarter for the company, a good quarter for shareholders. I, you know, hey man, I'm not going to lie. I'm a shareholder myself. It felt pretty good watching uh, watching the market receive that news so uh, so positively. So. Uh, you know, we'll keep an eye on it, and we'll keep reporting the quarterly uh, the quarterly reports for Stone Co. And uh, hopefully, we'll see more and more like the one we just saw. Uh, Matt, real quick, tell me if this is you. You get an average of eight hours of sleep per night. You eat a quality plant based diet. You exercise four or more times per week. Basically, you're doing everything right to ensure you live a long life. Is that you, Matt? Yeah, other than the eight hours of sleep, I have little kids. <laughs> okay, well, it's it's not me totally either, but I'm I'm working on it. Isn't it time though that you be financially rewarded for your commitment to a healthy lifestyle? Well, I'd Health like IQ that. sure thinks so, and they think it's time. And Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates for people like you on their life insurance offerings. In fact, Health IQ can save you up to forty one percent because physically active people have significantly lower risks for heart disease, cancer, and diabetes. To see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com fool to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz. Depending on your score, as well as other related qualifying factors, you can save up to 41% on your life insurance premiums compared to other providers. That's healthiq.com fool. Thank you also to Quip. Makers of the Quip Electric Toothbrush, Quip wants you to know the one single discovery that matters most for your dental care. It's simply this. If you have good habits, you're good. It's pretty simple. And Matt, I'm not going to lie. I floss every night. I brush twice a day. And every six months I go to the dentist. It seems like it's working out. Quip would say, I'm good. That means brushing for two minutes twice a day, flossing regularly, and Quip makes that simple. Their electric toothbrush has sensitive sonic vibrations with a built-in timer and 30-second pulses to guide a full and even clean. Plus, Quip delivers fresh brush head, floss, and toothpaste refills every three months with free shipping. Matt, I love it when stuff shows up at my doorstep as if from nowhere. (laughs) <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so join over 3 million healthy mouths and get Quip today, starting at $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash fool right now, you'll get your first refill free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash fool. That's spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash fool. Quip, the good habits company. Okay, Matt, this is uh, you know my favorite part of the show here. Last stock you bought and why. Our listeners love it. And hey, listeners, you know we want to hear about the stocks you're buying. So keep the emails coming. You can get us at industryfocus at fool.com or you can hit us up on Twitter 
at MF Industry Focus. Let us know the last stock you bought and why. We got an email from Caroline in New York City. Caroline says, the last stock I bought was also Shopify, Jason. I'm counting on Shopify to fund my retirement in relatively inexpensive Portugal, baby. I also bought more MasterCard, Square, Etsy, and Visa today. Is my nickname Moneybags McGee, you ask? Why no, it is not. But I have owned each of these stocks for at least a year or two, and I've also been unemployed this year, taking some time off to hang out in my middle schooler's classroom a lot to coach his cross-country team and to figure out what I really want to be when I grow up now that I'm 50. Well, Caroline, I think that you've got a very good start there with some of those names that you are mentioning, so congratulations. Chris Jones on Twitter, at Chris Jones PhD. He says, my most recent stock purchases were adding to Etsy and PayPal and opening positions in, Matt, you're going to love this one, opening positions in Green Dot and Shopify. Nice. <laughs> From Stuart Simpson, the at the real Mr. Willow on Twitter. Stuart says the last stock I bought was Disney because I'm building a portfolio for my boys and we wanted in before Disney Plus shoots the stock to the moon. Also because we can't go a day in our lives without something Disney. And then Stuart goes on to say that the last stock I bought in a follow-up here was a share of Disney because my wife got it for me for my birthday. So, Stuart, happy belated birthday, and great move there for you kids. You're a good father. I agree with you on that one. Disney Plus seems like a great service. My kids own Disney, too. Matt, if you had to buy a stock for your kids today, what would you buy? I don't know. Maybe maybe Square. Um, pr- probably Disney, just to get them interested. Um, that's a big part of it with, the, uh, with kids, I find. They're you could buy them any the best investment in the world, but if it's not something they care about, they're not going to be that interested in it. <laughs> so not going out there and buying them. Well, I guess you could buy them a share of Berkshire Hathaway and just be like, hey, you know what? Now you own some of Dairy Queen. I mean, that's pretty relatable, right? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, for all of our listeners out there celebrating this week, we hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. It's a short week for us here, so we're not gonna we're not gonna bring any stocks to watch for you at the end of the show today. Instead, we just want you to take a moment to recognize the people and the things in your life that you're thankful for. I mean, you don't really need a Thanksgiving to do that, but you can be very sure that we here at The Motley Fool and at Industry Focus are very thankful for all of you who continue to listen and support us and our merry ship of fools. Uh, With that said, Matt, I think that's going to wrap it up for us uh, this week. You got any big plans this Thanksgiving? Uh, we're having everybody at our house like we do every year. So, Oof. yeah, I'm cooking. <laughs> Batting down the hatches. Holy cow. What's the go-to dish for you? I make, I've been told I make the best stuffing anyone's ever had. So. Man, stuffing is good stuff. I uh, I share this every year. I, I just have to go ahead and throw it out there. Throw a nice big fat spoonful of peanut butter in that turkey before you throw it in the oven. And that thing just cooks out nicely, and you scrape up what's left over at the end of that uh, when the, when the turkey's done. And, and man, that that peanut butter takes on some of the flavor of the turkey. You can mix that in there with your stuffing or your sweet potatoes or whatever. Peanut butter stuffing. Now, I promise you won't regret it. Huh? Never even heard of that. I'll have to give that a try. Austin, how about you? Never heard of that. No, you got any big no. plans? Uh, we're going to my uncle's house and then to Kara's parents' house on Thursday. Um, Wednesday, I'm smoking a brisket for my cousin, so that's going to be hopefully good. Tight. Sounds delicious. Well, 
I plan on eating a lot, so uh, we'll go ahead and wrap it up so we can get started here. But uh, as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Austin Morgan. From Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. We'll be right back.